Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 1 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. I'll do the launches, but there isn't many launches to talk about. So there's only two more payloads gone up, according to spacetrack.org. I've made a note and put SpaceX did some crazy stuff. And the crazy stuff that they did was they put up 60 internet satellites, again, on one of their Falcon 9 rockets. I didn't watch the launch. Was it a landing success? It was really quite interesting watching the launch as well, because they took you right through to deployment. It was basically like this thing just opened up like a big concertina and everything floated out. Yeah, it was quite an impressive launch. But then I don't think I'll ever get tired of watching these rockets come down and land again. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? This is all about creating a broadband sort of internet in space, right? Yes, yeah. And the thing that seemed to be talked about most was that they were quite shiny in the sky. And I'm not trivialising that at all because astronomers were not happy. They did make me think that, that, you know, is anybody talking to the, the guys who are involved in using telescopes and astronomy about all these satellites that are being launched what what is the impact on them so i, I watched the launch and then when i first saw the first images of uh, taken from the ground of these bright spots all in a chain going over i thought oh, that's amazing that's so cool and it was only once the social media and various other blog posts and news articles got going about how it would have an impact on astronomy and, and other things Ultimately, the plan is to have 12,000 of these just from SpaceX. Wow. There's another 3,200 from Amazon. They want to stick a load up, which made me stop going, oh, my God, it's awesome. And and actually thinking about it in a bit more detail. And I think, yeah, you're right. There needs to be, and maybe there is, and we just don't know about it, but there needs to be a discussion between those people that are putting these up, those people who want to look beyond them, those who are managing what's up there and how they decay at the end of their life and things like that. So there's there's a whole raft of questions. And maybe that, you know, maybe it's a good thing that these 60 have gone up now and the questions are starting to be asked. Yeah. So, yeah, not really much in the launches. So shall we move on to the news, which is today on the 5th of June 2019. So we're we're recording this a little bit earlier than we would do usually, but we're going to try and release it at the normal time. The reason for that is just timing and scheduling. Even though it's not been that long since we last recorded an episode and recorded the news, I think quite a lot has happened. Yeah, the thing that I saw in the last week or so that I was most drawn to was on rbloggers.com was this report on data science jobs. It says in 2019, Python is growing very, very fast, TensorFlow even faster, and R is growing as well. So (laughs) good times for data science. You can see that there is a huge demand in knowledge for this, in searches for it, and that seems to be related to the jobs that are coming onto the market. It's always difficult to get a measure of what the market is, but this is sort of saying, if you're learning Python, this is what you should be doing, and this is a good thing. There are plenty of jobs out there. Maybe it's also good to look a bit broader if you are in the job market to see where your niche can be. We seem to be at a good place, it seems. Definitely. There's a plot on the website that you mentioned. And Mm -hmm. I think what's really interesting is the top two in terms of uh, number of data science jobs 
uh, Python and SQL and SQL. And those are the yes. two things that you've mentioned almost since beginning this podcast, I think. You're, you, you know, whenever you talk about skills that people should have, it's Python and SQL. This graph shows that each of those are important and both together would be a super skill set to have. Yeah, I often sort of make that joke of, should I learn Python or should I learn R? And I often say you should learn SQL. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because I just think that that is going to be, that's been around since I started doing GIS and it's been around longer than Python and it's still in demand. It's set up to be around for a long time after. Yeah. Well, these two are just so far ahead in terms of every other technology that's listed on this plot. It's, it's really interesting to see that. The only other one that caught my eye that I'm surprised about is Tableau and that that's as high up as it is. I suppose it makes sense in that it's taking off as a dashboarding piece of software and, and companies, if they've shelled out the cash to have a subscription to it, are going to need people who understand how to use it. I, I, I'm just interested that that's up there above things like calls for jobs around Microsoft Azure, MATLAB, SPSS. Tableau, I first came across Tableau a couple of years ago. I think there's a paid version and there's an open version. I was being shown it as a data visualization tool and it was sold to me as this kind of new way of manipulating data and it read in an Excel sheet easily. And you know, it made a very convincing case. But they also had the ability, and I don't know how much it's improved since, of taking geographic data and plotting it on a map. And everybody who had Tableau could then be a cartographer. And I thought that that's an interesting turn, isn't it? I'm 50-50 on whether I think it's a useful tool. It would be interesting to see what the difference is between the subscription and the no-cost version and see whether or not there's any improvement in some of the things you can do with the spatial data. That was my thing of news that most sort of sparked my imagination. As seems to have been my thing for the past couple of podcasts, I have an announcement about an upcoming event. So this is the Open Source CubeSat Workshop 2019, which is in Athens in Greece in mid-October, so 14th to 16th of October. It's more than just remote sensing. It's basically about open source software and hardware to promote how open source and the open source philosophy can be used in CubeSat missions. I mean, can you imagine this being an event 10 years ago? No. I think there are two reasons why it would be difficult to imagine that. One is CubeSat. 10 years ago, were they around? Maybe they were just coming into being. But also, open source really has become the dominant mindset. Yeah. It sort of leads me nicely to something I was going to talk about briefly, which was the Satellite Applications Catapult has released its Q1, Small Sats Market Intelligent Report. And yeah, it talks about the three main types of satellites, reserve observation, communications, and um, navigation. And as we know, that 2017 was sort of a record-breaking year, predominantly driven by the doves. Check out the report. I'm not quite sure. I can't remember if you have to register to, to access it. We'll put the, put the link. But it sort of gives you a broad overview of the market for the last 10 years and the distribution around the world. You can see it dominated by the US, um, Northern Europe, and increasingly, as we've spoken about before, the Asian market. Uh, so I've got a bit of news from Brazil. At the end of May, Cebus 4A was transported to China ready for launch. It's scheduled for launch in the second half of the year. Cebus 4A is the sixth satellite that China and Brazil have, have worked on together. Do you know what satellite it is, what it's going to do? It's an optical system. I mean, it looks as if that there's going to be a, a series of different cameras on this. There's a multispectral camera, a panchromatic and multispectral imager, a wide field imager and an infrared multispectral scanner. So, you know, they're, they're putting a decent number of things on there. Yeah, I think 
this will fit in nicely with some of the open data sets that are right there. Some of these government-backed satellites should be making their data open as well. And maybe you know, maybe they are. Maybe I'm just missing where the, the sites are. Okay. I wanted to mention this post I saw about Amazon AWS Ground Station, but need to ingest and process satellite data. And it's nothing really too pertinent to perhaps what, what we like to do. But I kind of like reading about it and, and the sort of idea that you can spin up a ground station and configure your satellite contact and schedule a contact and then you open the console and then you start downloading the data at you know crazy speed so aws announced a few months back that they were setting up these ground stations they've got two um going at the moment maybe they're sort of shaking up this this end of the market i, I don't really operate in it so i'm not sure but yeah i i, I like this the this post, it sort of steps through it and you can see when the satellite is within range of the ground station and you can then pick that satellite. And yeah, it's a, wow. an interesting post. These blog posts that are, that are written are always very good at telling a story. And I really like the way that they've told the story here. One of the things I wanted to mention isn't anything to do with um, Earth observation, but I found it really useful because I was looking for some data recently um, for Africa and came across a site called opendataforafrica.org. And they have a data portal. And I'll put the link in the show notes. It's brilliant. It's really handy. So you can basically choose by country, and then it takes you through to lists of data that you can get. And there's all sorts of different things. There's some spatial data in there, but there's a whole raft of other sort of socioeconomic stuff and development indicators and competitiveness and agriculture statistics and things so if you're looking for data for the african continent a good place to start this is something that i wanted to highlight as well that is from the philippines so the department of science and technology and it's something called datos which as far as i can understand is using geospatial information alongside artificial intelligence and machine learning to try and get all sorts of new information from the imagery. So one of the things that's mentioned in this post that I've seen is the use of hydromet stations to create almost real-time weather and water level data sets from across the Philippines and then using these alongside satellite imagery to create maps of basically flood outlines and that sort of thing. I think this is a really interesting use case uh, that's happening sort of outside the world that we generally on this podcast tend to look at, which is the sort of European and, and US centric. So if we have any listeners from the Philippines who know a bit more about this, it'd be really great if you could interact with us on Twitter and uh, you know tell us about the project and just let us know a bit more about what's happening out there because this is interesting stuff. And that's it for the news. Okay, cool. So I'll just do a quick introduction. We're very lucky to have with us Robin Wilson today. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast, Robin. Some of you may know Robin from the work that he's done in the past on Pi6S, which is a Python interface to the 6S atmospheric radiative transfer model. Robin is also the curator of the Free GIS Data website, where there's a whole host of different GIS data listed. We're going to be talking about NetCDF and X-Array, and Python, and probably a whole stack more. Robert, it's great to speak to you, and you know, thanks for coming on. I really wanted to sort of say initially thanks for 
creating this free GIS data resource that you put together. And I was just checking it out a minute ago and you updated it in 9th of May. So you're keeping it up to date. I am, yes. Um, not quite as much as I used to, um, but I still get quite a lot of emails you know, providing updates or telling me that links have changed or, or suggesting new data sets that I, I might want to list on there. Um, I also get a lot of emails from people saying, please find me a data set on such and such, which yeah. <laughs> isn't quite how it works. But um, but uh, yeah, I'm trying to keep it up to date. And I've, I've heard a lot of good things from people that are that are using it across a whole range of, of fields and a whole range of different levels of GIS work. So what I was going to ask you, you know, what has sort of inspired you to put it together? Was it because you just saw it's so hard to find GIS data? So it was during my PhD. I mean, as a lot of these things are, it was a procrastination from, from writing my PhD <laughs> thesis. Um, and I mean, you find that lots of things. I, I remember reading that Matt Plotlib for the, the Python plotting library was, yeah. was just the creator not wanting to write his PhD thesis. So I think a lot of things come out of procrastination during your PhD. And I'd been using all sorts of different bits of geographic data during my PhD, both for my work and with other people, because I got a kind of reputation as a useful GIS guy in the department and people come to me from a you know, in a completely different area of research and say could you help me find some data on tea plantations in India please or could you help me please find some precipitation data for Tanzanian lakes and I'd go off and find it and I thought I've got a load of links sitting in my bookmarks why don't I stick them on a on a website and the first website was a ghastly designed html page that i put together that looking back on it just looks horrible um and then at one point i thought oh well i've got a chapter of my phd to write why don't i tidy up the website and make it look pretty instead um, and that's what i did and i get i get lots and lots of views lots and lots of hits to it these days i can't more about what the most recent statistics are but i i get you know thousands of views a month definitely Wow, that's great. Very occasionally, people click the donate link on the top and, and give me five quid or ten quid or something, which is even better. This is great. Google, we use it all the time, but it's not quite there for finding spatial data yet. Maybe you feel differently. I mean, one of the things that sort of annoyed me that I tried to get round with this list was that um, you find loads of sites that are kind of, this is a you know some sort of interactive map-based thing where you have millions of layers but half of them you can't access and half of them don't cover where you want them to and the interface is slow and clunky and you it just takes you ages to try and find whether it's got something you want or not and they spend all this time putting together fancy software that allows you to select by location and date and, and it just never quite works properly whereas what i really focus on is links to websites where you can you, know, you can download shapefiles or geo packages or geo tips or whatever and it's just nice and simple here's the data click the button select the bit you want download it and it's done without sort of mucking around with ArcGIS online interfaces and and like awful council provided data source viewers that just never work and take three years to load yeah and i just like the immediacy of you know here's a link it says you've got whatever it is you want Click it, go to it, download it, off you go. I'm going to push us on to X-Array and NetCDF, if that's all right. Robin, I was just wondering if you could explain what X-Array is and why it's important. Yes, so X-Array is a Python library, an open source library, um, that basically allows you to process multidimensional arrays 
really effectively with labels along their axes. Now that may not make a huge amount of sense. So let's think about an example. Let's imagine that you have a load of um, raster data on air quality over the UK. And this is actually a problem I had when I first came across X-ray and used it to solve my problem. So what I had was a load of, a load of separate raster images, each of which was, I don't know, a thousand by a thousand pixels or something, you know, each pixel covering a kilometer or whatever. Um, and I had a stack of those over time, and I had hundreds of those. I had one per day for about 10 years, so, so many thousands of those. And I wanted to process them in what I thought was a fairly simple way. I wanted to get out your monthly averages or be able to easily select an image that recorded to a particular date or look at a time series for a particular point over my house and look at air pollution from these images over time. I thought this must be easy to do in GIS systems and so on. But I found it was actually really difficult. And I came across this X-ray library, which allows you to take this sort of three-dimensional array that you've got. So you've got three dimensions of X and Y for your images. And the third dimension is this, this time dimension of, of every um, image over time. And it allows you to assign labels to these indexes so that you can select the right bits. So rather than having to just deal with sort of index 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, as you would with a normal array in something like NumPy, you can actually say, give me the 2nd of June 2015, and it knows which one that is. Or you can say, group it by months, and it knows how to deal with all of the months and the fact that months have different numbers of days and start in different places and, and so on. It does that automatically. It does that automatically it works wow. once you've given it the labels. Okay. The key thing really is it's it's basically arrays like NumPy, but with labels on the axis. The other way of thinking about it is it's a bit like pandas. If you've used pandas for dealing with sort of CSV style data where you've got a load of different columns and rather than saying it's the fifth column along, you can refer to it by its name of age or population or whatever it's called. It's like that but for big multidimensional arrays. Wow. Are you constrained by the types of label that you can give it, or can you basically label it whatever? You can give it pretty much any Python object as a, as a label. It has some nice built-in things for doing things with dates, for example, so that you can do things like grouping by month or season or year, and you can resample things and do, do all sorts of complicated things with dates, but it will work with anything. You can give it strings as well, so you can have a four-dimensional data set where you had X and Y plus time, and then your fourth dimension was different types of air pollution. So particulate matter, ozone, nitrogen dioxide, carbon monoxide, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you've actually got an even bigger, more complicated array, but you can still slice and dice it really easily by just telling it what you want to get out. That sounds brilliant. Wow. Okay. It's one of those things where you, you hear what it does and suddenly you think, why hasn't everyone been using this? So it's becoming more popular. It, it started off really within the sort of meteorology fields because meteorology has a lot of these yeah. very high dimensional data sets because, for example, outputs of meteorological models will have outputs at various heights in the atmosphere as well as over time and over X and Y locations. So you end up with sort of four or five, maybe even six dimensional data sets. And this was originally used for a lot of processing of, of met and, and climate data. Um, but it's gradually been sort of growing in other fields and gradually become better known and it's so much easier than doing it all yourself a few years before i came across x-ray i wrote a load of code to do a load of these things myself 
by basically writing big multi-dimensional arrays and then keeping separate Python lists of dates and pollutant types and then trying to you know, do all wow. the sort of if statements to make it all work properly and deal with the fact that that year is a leap year and this month has 28 days, but that month has 30. And it was just horrible. There were bugs everywhere. I understand now from what you've said what XRA can do, but how does it relate to either GDAL, which we mentioned quite a lot on the podcast, or to, to Pandas, which you've mentioned? Is XRA built on either of those or are they all separate projects? So they're separate projects, but they, they use each other. The X-Ray uses both of those. So it uses right. some of the underlying Pandas code to deal with some of its, how it handles these indexes, these labels on each axis. And so it, it builds on the, the well-tested, well-maintained Pandas code. And then with GDAL, it uses GDAL, as a lot of projects do, for the input and output. Um, so it can read in, um, it uses the Raster.io library, um, which is built on GDAL and can read in any of the GDAL raster data types. And it reads in the spatial referencing information as well, stores that as metadata in the array so it can get passed on through all of your processes and use it to then write out a, a, a georeferenced image at the end of it to, to then process in a GIS system or, or whatever. So there does seem to be this kind of visibility issue that X-Ray seems to suffer from. Yes, I think you're right. I mean, I hadn't come across it before when I was desperately looking for a way to solve this this problem I had with these air pollution data sets um, and it seemed to be quite hidden then I think it's gradually getting more usage through things like Pangeo which have been quite good at, at um, promoting it and I've done a few talks at conferences and so on about x-ray and tried to get it open to, to, to more people and it's only been relatively recently that it's gained the ability to read in using GDAL you know, having that built into it. Um, when I first used X-Ray, I had to write my own functions to to load in GDAL data and, and store the spatial reference data and, and that kind of thing, which made a, a sort of higher barrier to entry. But I think it is gradually growing. And I and I think you know, it's very actively maintained. It's, it's, there's new releases quite regularly with new features and, and lots of bug fixes and things. So it, it's definitely something that you can build on at the moment that's not really going anywhere. Um, you know, it's not going to disappear suddenly. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's going to take a bit more time to get it really, really used by a wider variety of people within the field. Sentinel 5P was, you know, something, a satellite and the data coming down is something that's very exciting and it's in this net CDF format that QGS was struggling to open and it perhaps still does. I haven't checked it in the latest version. This format seems to lend itself nicely to this X-Array. Often I say to people, you need to get into your head that a satellite image is effectively a NumPy array. Do you see it differently? Do you see Earth observation data as essentially an X-ray? Well, I mean, they are basically, I mean, an X-ray is basically just a NumPy array with yeah. some extra metadata about it. So anything that can be represented in a NetCDF file can be immediately translated into, a, into an X-ray data set. Uh, NetCDF files already have places for storing all of the metadata that x-ray is interested in all these labels for the different axes are stored in the original x-ray uh, in the original net cdf files yeah so you can easily load them in and you can and net cdf is also the standard format for storing x-rays out out to disk so it works perfectly for satellite data because satellite data is an array with some interesting metadata about what each dimension represents because when you have a satellite image you need to know things about your x and y dimension like what 
coordinate system it's in, yeah, what, yeah, what yeah. units they're in, and so on. And you need to know something about your spectral dimension or your time dimension. Um, as to you know, they might be again in units of micrometers or nanometers, or or units of time or Julian days or something like that, re- ready to be stored in a in a NetCDF file and used in X-ray. I will, however, say that sometimes I do find the way that data is provided by satellite providers in NetCDF files to be rather annoying because it then isn't the easiest to load into standard GIS software like QGIS. Partly that's due to it being a a NetCDF file, but I think more than that it's due to the way that coordinate systems and so on are stored in, in NetCDF files that makes it a bit harder to have the data imported easily in a geo-referenced way into a GIS system because often what they have is a separate sort of data set within the NetCDF file that contains an array of latitude and longitude values, well two arrays, one of latitude and one longitude values for each pixel in the image. So you're not being given just a sort of top left pixel, a pixel size and a number of pixels. You're being given a location for every single pixel. And then you need to use some more complicated GDAL routines that process that into something that has a, a more standard georeferencing system that's more easy to load in something like QGIS. And that's a bit of a pain. Is there a routine that would take a, I think you said earlier that there was, that would take a GeoTIFF and read it into an X-Array and I could do whatever oh. I needed to do? Yeah, definitely. Yes. So it's built into X-Ray now. You just use the open raster IO function, which uses this raster IO library, which is basically just a wraparound GDAL. And you can give it any file that GDAL can read um, and it will stick it in an X-Ray and it will stick the georeferencing data as metadata for this array because X-Rays can store any sort of random data you want as, as metadata um, and that will get passed through as you process the array and so it's sitting there like you would have if you were using GDAL manually in a Python script you, you, you'd read in the georeferencing data when you read in your image you'd keep track of that and use that again when you wrote it out after you've done your processing. X-Ray does it the same way, it just stores it sort of internally to the array and you don't actually have to worry about it yourself. Is, is there a speed implication in that, do you think? No, because they're, they're stored outside of the actual arrays that are behind X-Ray, but they're just kind of attached to them. So they travel around with it, um, but they don't, it's not like you're storing kind of one of those for each cell of the array or anything. Yeah, okay. And X-Ray is, in fact, very good at performance. It uses a Python library called Dask underneath the hood, which allows you to do parallel processing, even just on one computer. You can do multi-core processing. And it does it in a very clever way where it works out everything that needs doing to begin with and works out the most efficient possible way of doing it without duplicating any work. So if, for example, you're doing something where you need to sum all of the values as part of calculating a mean but also as part of something else you're doing in the processing chain you need to sum all the values for another purpose as well it will only do the summing all the values operation once and use that intermediate data both for calculating the mean and for and for doing whatever else whatever the other analysis was and it stores all of this in in what's called a a graph a a sort of flowchart of of how it's going to process it and then process it efficiently either on your computer or you can process it on a huge cluster of computers in exactly the same way really really fast 
I was going to bring up Dask. In my head, I thought it was something that was alongside X-Ray, but you're saying it's sort of under the hood of X-Ray and it, it is used whenever you want to do large amounts of processing in X-Ray. So it's both. It's a separate project that can be used independently and, it's, and other things build on it as well. But X-Ray can use Dask and has a sort of Dask interfaces built in. Right, so okay. basically you just tell it, I want to do this using Dask um, and it will load things in efficiently with Dask and then process them in this kind of graph-based way that I've mentioned. Yeah. Then if you want to, you can delve deeply into the Dask configuration to make it work on your cluster or go really fast or, or you know, debug what's going on with it. But if you don't want to think about that, you can just ignore that Dask is underneath and it will just use it and, and do things nice and efficiently for you automatically. On your website, on your About Me, you list all the sort of skills that you have and, you know, obviously highly competent in many things. If I was a complete beginner going into this industry for, for the first time or perhaps start a degree or whatever, how would you answer this question? Should I study or should I learn Python, R, um, SQL, Java? What should I be focusing on? I think the key thing is that you should learn some programming of some sort. In some ways, it doesn't really matter what exactly you learn because the concepts are the key thing, understanding the concepts of how to split a, a task down into separate functions, you know, implement those in, in programming languages, deal with arrays, you know, deal with data sets. They're all fairly constant across languages. I probably would personally recommend Python, but R is very good as well for, for spatial data. I'm just less involved in that community. But it's really understanding the concepts and realizing that you can go beyond just the point and click GUI-based approaches of, of ArcGIS or QGIS or anything like that. You can step a, a, another level down and really implement custom methods, define custom operations in a way that you can't do within the sort of consumer level point and click sort of world of, of your GIS systems. Did you have any experience of programming before you did your degree? I did actually, yes. I actually, um, strange as it may sound, did a gap year before I came to university where I wrote control software for a nuclear power station. Okay, so that's that's quite unusual. It, it is quite unusual. I, I was debating about whether to do um, computer science or geography at university and decided it was easier to pick up the computer science myself on the internet and so on, uh, where it was harder to pick up some of the stuff I cover in a geography degree. Yeah. And I have been programming before that as well. I did A-level computing and, and did some programming as part of that and, and so on. Was there much programming in your degree? Not a huge amount, no. I mean, I brought in bits of programming to some bits of my degree that didn't have them. And then, in fact, when I was doing my PhD, I was part of a team that introduced a programming course for master's students at the university, um, doing master's in, in GIS and remote sensing. Um, and I was involved in teaching in teaching that course i'd like to sort of personally thank you for sharing so much code and stuff online you've really helped me in the past so i appreciate that yeah that's very great to hear because so often you you stick this stuff out online and you only ever hear if there's a problem with it so it's so nice to hear when people do use it and, and do appreciate it brilliant thank you very much for coming onto the podcast well thanks very much robin really appreciate it If you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then we'd encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOScenefrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at Map underscore Andrew. 
please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. Thanks for listening. And that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Cheers. Bye. I'm telling you, it's all in the editing. Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.